This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We share with these beautiful cousins of ours skin that serves a variety of important functions, and we've heard a lot about those functions already today, protection, thermoregulation. Today I'm going to reprise a little bit of what's been said already about those first two functions and then talk somewhat about this enormous realm of human communication that we engage in with skin. Over time and through evolution, if we compare the relative importance of, prote- of protection and thermoregulation versus communication, we can see that in human evolution, communication has become one of the major functions of skin, especially since the evolution of functionally naked skin. I want to first just reprise a little bit of information about protection, though, because it's useful to think about what we lost. Hair is enormously useful, and our primate relatives and our mammalian ancestors had hair that helped to insulate and protect against all manner of environmental problems and abrasion ultraviolet radiation and water, and hair helps to slow the ingress of pathogens to the skin. But we lost hair. And although there is some controversy about why we lost it and exactly when, uh, we know that we now have functionally naked skin probably by early homo times, and almost certainly for reasons having to do with the need to keep cool during exercise by a high volume of ecrine sweating. And what the important uh, conclusion of this is, is that for much of our, the key portions of our evolution, hairless bodies are our interface with the environment, a very different situation than in other mammals. The evolution of the, of the stratum corneum, the very top part of the epidermis, is something that has been dealt with a lot in, in the dermatological literature. We know that the epidermis, and particularly the stratum corneum at the very surface of the epidermis here, resists abrasion, restricts water loss, and prevents the ingress of pathogens. But that great change from the haired to the hairless condition basically involved changes to the stratum corneum. So when we think about really what Ajit Varki's point was at the very beginning of the symposium, why is the skin different? Uh, We see from referring to the chimp genome project that in fact the skin is the most distinct organ. Human skin has been, uh, has many genes that have been evolving independently and very different from those of chimpanzees, much more so than any organ or cell system. And the most important genes in this regard are those having to do with the stratum corneum and the barrier functions of the epidermis. We could go on at length 
My colleague Peter Elias has done distinguished work in this area. We know that this stratum corneum in humans is particularly lipid-rich, that we have interferon gamma that helps to generate a potent antiviral state in the stratum corneum, and the skin microbiome plays an enormously important and still uh, quite uh, unclear but emerging role. The skin also has to protect against another major assault, which is that of the sun and particularly ultraviolet radiation. We know from data provided from NASA that the ultraviolet radiation load that we get on the Earth's surface is strongest around the equator, shown in the, in the bright pink and red tones here in the map, much, much lower as we get close to the poles, especially in these large land masses in the northern hemisphere. How have humans coped with these high levels of UV in our ancestral areas and much lower levels in areas outs or areas of habitation later in aspects of our evolution. In early Homo, the loss of body hair is associated with the development of permanent dark pigmentation. So instead of having dark hair covering lightly pigmented skin, we evolve permanently darkly pigmented skin. And that is largely to do with the production of high amounts of the tremendously interesting pigment called eumelanin, a fascinating polymer that has myriad important properties, the most important for our purposes being the ability to scatter and absorb ultraviolet radiation and prevent damage to underlying tissues. Ultraviolet radiation causes a lot of damage to the skin that can lead to skin cancer, especially in individuals who are genetically susceptible. But skin cancer rarely causes mortality. So I, as someone who is interested in in figuring out why skin pigmentation evolved as it did, and specifically why dark pigmentation evolved, got very interested in, in the effect of ultraviolet radiation on something that would really count for reproductive success in evolution. And I started looking a lot at folate metabolism. Without going into a lot of detail, suffice it to say that we need folate, one of the key B vitamins, in order to fuel DNA synthesis, which is particularly important in certain parts of of our development and life, especially in early embryogenesis, when we know that folate is critical for the formation of the embryonic neural tube, which is the precursor of the modern or the the, uh, adult nervous system. So if you have an environmental agent like ultraviolet radiation that can actually break down folate and affect other aspects of the folate metabolism in a pregnant mother, then you can affect reproductive success. And this is why we've highlighted that mechanism.
So here I say the primary, not the only, but the primary selective force for the evolution of permanent dark pigmentation is protection against ultraviolet-induced changes in folate availability and DNA synthesis in early embryogenesis and in sperm production. But humans did not remain in the ancestral environment of Africa. Much of human evolution, including much of Homo sapiens evolution, has occurred in Africa. Tremendous amounts of diversification, but humans have moved around a lot. And here we can see in the history of of modern humans, we have people moving small populations moving out of Africa into areas of very different ultraviolet radiation, including very low areas, or very low UV areas, later in our evolutionary history. Why is that important? Because ultraviolet radiation, mostly a malign influence that we think about in evolution, is a creative influence and is extremely important in all vertebrates in the production of vitamin D in the skin. Without ultraviolet B radiation, we cannot make vitamin D in the skin. And what we have shown in in our research, and this has been supported by many collateral lines of evidence, is that the primary selective force for the evolution of lightly pigmented, or more correctly, depigmented skin, is promotion of ultraviolet radiation-induced vitamin D production in the skin under conditions of low and seasonal ultraviolet radiation. And so here in modern humans, we have this beautiful and delightful contrast between skin on the left that maximizes photoprotection against ultraviolet radiation and skin on the right that maximizes photosynthesis of vitamin D under conditions of low UV. And skin pigmentation is a superb evolutionary compromise, something that we should talk about in our classes of evolution and human biology, a superb compromise that is an excellent illustration of the action of natural selection on the human body. Thermoregulation, I'm only going to say that as we evolved uh, through time, we became far more active. This beautiful example of an early member of the genus Homo was not a tentative biped. This was a striding, running, active individual that built up a lot of body heat under hot environmental conditions. Here was the the natural selective substrate, as it were, for the loss of most functional body hair. Evaporation of sweat is impeded by hair, and so we reason that most body, most functional body hair was actually lost because of the importance of facilitating sweat, the evaporation of sweat from the surface of the body. And so functional hairlessness then can best be thought about as facilitating active body, body cooling, whole body cooling through eccrine sweating during lengthy periods of sustained exercise. Communication has always been an important function of skin. Whether we're talking about a distant mammalian ancestor or a primate relative, primates touch one another. Communication through touch 
especially beginning with infant-mother communication, is central. This continues and is elaborated in the hairless uh, human infant and in hairless bodies contacting one another, and we know that this type of touch communication is absolutely essential for mother-infant bonding in our primate relatives and in ourselves. When we lost most of our body hair, we lost an important method of displaying our emotions. This chimpanzee on the left is exhibiting a display, a very visible display of anger and aggression toward the individual on the right. And he is able to manifest this magnificent raising of hackles. What do we do without, without hair? We have no hackles. We might, our little feeble hairs might go up. What do we do instead? We don't know for certain. But what we do know is that modern humans have much more finely differentiated and highly active facial muscles than do even chimpanzees. And we have the evolution of enhanced facial expressivity in humans that is probably related to that loss of expressivity in the raising of the hackles. As soon as humans evolved naked skin, or probably very soon thereafter, people realized that they could decorate their skin. We don't know when they happened upon this, but we have some enticing evidence that comes from Blombos Cave in South Africa from about 70,000 years ago that would indicate that by that time, people were beginning to use ochre for decorations and for decorating the inside of rock shelters. This is exciting because I would venture that probably long before this, humans had been using ochre and similar pigments to rub on themselves, to mark themselves. We can't prove this, but it seems highly likely. Humans are lavish decorators of themselves. We may not have colorful fur, but we more than compensate for this by having myriad ways of decorating ourselves with body paint, with cosmetics. In most cultures, both sexes are involved and many parts of the body are involved in decoration. There is no culture that we know in the world that does not adorn its skin in some way. Modern humans have developed not only body paints, but also cosmetics, now mostly associated with women, but certainly centuries ago not. A lavish form of communication that is incredibly important that individuals can manipulate and change from one day or one season to another. We also start making permanent marks on our body. We know from the preserved remains of the so-called Tyrolean Iceman, dating from around 5,000 years ago, that we have evidence of tattooing of the skin. These are thought to be therapeutic tattoos that were on the skin, not necessarily decorative. Many of them are crosses or simple lines, parallel lines. But the fact that they're, that they're 
present that early in the archaeological record with, uh, in Neolithic humans is significant. And humans around the world tattoo themselves, and sometimes lavishly. This uh, woman from Burma has beautiful facial tattoos that signify her marriage, her marriageable status, and that identify her to a particular uh, clan group. But what do we say just through our color? And the rest of this lecture I want to devote to the messages, the communication that actually comes from our color. During most of human history, humans moved around slowly. They came into contact with one another gradually. There were no big surprises. And it's not surprising that through much of history, not just prehistory, but much of history, we have no indication that humans treated one another differently on the basis of color. It only is relatively recent, in the last few hundred years, that color becomes something that has social significance and that has some kind of set of stereotypes and even stigmas attached to it. And we really see the emergence of a modern color consciousness beginning in the 18th century when innate skin color comes to communicate both racial identity or race uh, belonging and social status. One of the most interesting figures in this history is the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a very careful reader of Linnaeus, the great taxonomist. Linnaeus made very simple descriptions of humans according to skin color and geography. Later, he associated skin color and geography with some characteristics of behavior and culture. Kant was an avid reader of Linnaeus. And Kant, although he's known far more for his uh, his thoughts on rationality and human thinking had tremendous curiosity about human diversity, human origins, and the origins of human capacity for civilization. And so he thought a lot about Linnaeus and what Linnaeus said, and Kant, not a naturalist, but Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, was the first to actually enunciate the presence of four races. And the key thing about Kant's races were that in his mind they were immutable. They couldn't change ever. And this was not just a list, it was a hierarchy. And critical here is the primacy of the white race, which is something that we see emerging again in different guises for many centuries or many decades after this. Kant's tremendous influence was complemented by the importance of maintaining a strict social hierarchy in order to keep the transatlantic slave trade going. By the early 1800s, there was tremendous pressure 
to end slavery, to end the slave trade, but it was very, very financially appealing and important for the hierarchy of races, and especially the primacy of the white race over the so-called black race, to be enunciated so that slavery could be maintained. And we see this complementarity between a philosophical and a religious or pseudo-religious underpinning for race hierarchies and slavery along with the, the mercantile and capitalist underpinnings. A very pernicious system that led to the social differentiation of color, something that hadn't existed at least in as strong a form and violent a form before. And so we see race definitions that are associated with color that lead seemingly inexorably to the development of racial stereotypes, especially when they're propagated by individuals like Kant, like Thomas Jefferson, who were highly socially influential through their writings, leading to the development of what I've called color memes that are adopted and transmitted from family to family, generation to generation, leading to a durable psychosocial template for racism. So skin, coming from this, this delightful and beautiful evolutionary background, skin color actually reflects our evolutionary history, but in this most recent part of human written history, comes to represent something entirely different. But I am not a pessimistic person. And the beautiful thing about humans as primates is that we are tremendously imitative and suggestible, and we can change. We adopted in Western civilization broadly certain attitudes toward color and we can change those attitudes. We're not, create, we're not trapped by the color memes that we have created. And this aspect of communication through skin can, in fact, change. I want to celebrate the beauty of human skin and invite you to think more about the, the exquisite path that skin has taken through the last seven or so million years of the human lineage. The evolution of hairlessness, functional nakedness, sweating, the development of, of these marvelous appendages, and the beautiful feast of microbes and other creatures that live on the surface of our skin. And then the superb things that we do with this beautiful naked canvas that has been produced by evolution. Let's celebrate those and continue an active program of research. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.